You're tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Khan. I'm delighted today to welcome Anchal Molhotra, speaking to us via Zoom from Delhi in India. Welcome, Anchal. Welcome to Tidings and to WPKN Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It really is a pleasure to hear your voice after our correspondence. Anchal is the author of a very beautiful book, Remnants of Partition, 21 Objects from a Continent Divided. This book is beautiful because of the wonderful photographs heading each of the 21 chapters. And it's beautiful because of the writing. And perhaps most of all, it's beautiful for the idea of remnants and the power they have to tell us a story we might not otherwise hear. So thank you for bringing us all of this, Anchal. It's my pleasure. So before we talk about your book and you describe what remnants of partition, what the title means, perhaps you can give our listeners a very quick history lesson about partition itself, an event that happened 75 years ago, what partition was and how it came about. Yes, that's a complicated question. I will try to simplify it or give you the most basic facts at least. Uh, Partition, the word partition, at least in the subcontinent, refers to the partition of British India in 1947 into the independent nations of India and Pakistan. The dissolution of empire in India and decolonization, the landmass was divided into two, leading Hindus and Sikhs to migrate eastward to what was a Hindu majority India, a secular state. Muslims to migrate westward to current-day Pakistan, which was an Islamic republic, with minority religions like Hindus and Sikhs and Christians. It was the largest mass migration of people outside of wartime, leading to something like 14 million people displaced and approximately a million killed. These are official numbers, so you can imagine that unofficial numbers of people that are unaccounted for can be far more. In any case, it was a disruption of millions of people, and the traumas are felt even today, both in the geopolitics of the subcontinent between the countries of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and also in the families and memories of people who lived through it. There's an irony, because in the days before partition, Religion did very little to differentiate people then. Now, of course, it's become the number one factor of differentiation. Yes, and I think this is something that comes up in a lot of interviews I do. I've been speaking to people across India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh for about 10 years now, working as an oral historian of partition. And this is something that inevitably comes up, the shock that people felt, because essentially it was the provinces of Punjab, in the West and Bengal in the East that were divided. Mm. And whether it is any of those cities or villages in those areas, for the most part, there was a harmony in which people lived where the Mm. ethnicity of being Punjabi or being Bengali or being Sindhi was far more important than the religion that you followed. And there was a harmony between communities, the camaraderie, there were friendships. And I think that when we speak of partition today, we only speak of these huge political and religious Mm -hmm. divides, and we often forget these other emotions that existed and were fractured because of partition. And the memories of those convergences, let's say, linger Mm -hmm. and produce a great yearning and a sadness 
rather than anger and hatred. I think even when there is anger and bitterness, it can coexist with longing and sadness. Mm -hmm. And despite all of those decades having passed, I don't think the wound of partition has healed. Mm -hmm. And people very much still are imprisoned by the feelings of detachment from their home. But wherever one has ended up, there will always be remnants of memories that remain from one's original homeland. Or even if you remained in your homeland, there will be memories of what life used to be like mm -hmm. before it was captured. Mm -hmm. Especially as they grow older. You know, for many people I speak to, they remember the meal that they ate before they left or the clothes they were wearing on the journey or what they carried. 75 years later, this book, it's about, as you say, the, the, what they carried, the objects they carried across the Radcliffe line, which is the line that was drawn by the British to demarcate India from Pakistan. It's all sorts of little or big things that were taken from one's homeland that are probably one of the only physical traces of that homeland now with them. You talk about the idea of material memory, the vessels of memory as manifested in these, these objects. Can you talk about how you came to write this book? Yes, absolutely. It was 2013. I was a grad student at Montreal and I was studying fine art. I'm a visual artist by training mm. and I was on a sabbatical back home in Delhi before I would start my thesis. And I encountered two very ordinary objects in my maternal grandfather's home. And they were such ordinary objects. It was a medium-sized vessel called a ghada in which lassi is made. Lassi is like buttermilk. Mm -hmm. And there was a yardstick, a yardstick, a very old-fashioned yardstick, like the kind that measures fabric at a clothing store. Mm. And I was told that these objects had been carried from Lahore to Amritsar during partition and then to Delhi. And I don't think I had ever really considered the word partition before that. And it seems a bit embarrassing to say that now, but when we learn about partition in school, and I grew up in India, we learn about it with such a sense of removal. It's taught with great distance. It was something that happened so far back in the past that it couldn't affect me at all. Mm. And I think the minute I saw those objects and they belonged to my grandfather's elder brother and as he was touching them and talking about them and caressing them and smelling them, he was transported to this childhood in Lahore. So it was these two ordinary objects that absolutely transfixed me. And I think this is the case with aged objects. They have the ability to absorb time. It doesn't have to be objects side across any border. It doesn't have to be migratory objects. It can be any object. When you are in the presence of an old object, you often think about the person they used to belong to or the memories associated with that thing or the time period that it comes from. And in this case, these objects had absorbed this very tumultuous, defining moment in South Asian history. This was also why I became so enamored with the object. That mm. without it, when I would try to question, it would feel intrusive. It would feel like something I didn't have the right to ask about, even though it's my history. 
Partition is very much present in my family, but it's not a wound that I have lived, but it's something that I carry, even unknowingly, even without mm -hmm. understanding all the details. Partition is a wound that I very much am aware of in my family. But to ask the question so brazenly, oh, tell me about partition. I heard you lived through it. It must have been horrible. Mm -hmm. And you don't know what the threshold of your questioning is or whether you are opening older wounds. But to do it with the aid of an object mm. felt like a gentler way to enter into a landscape that may still be quite traumatic to people. So saying, oh, you carried this ring with you. Oh, that's very interesting. Why did you carry this ring? Oh, your mother told you to carry it because it was precious and you would sell it when you came here. How come you didn't sell it? What was the journey like? Where did you come from? Where did you hear about partition? You read about it in the paper. What paper did you read? What language did you read in? You know, this was, to talk of the object was to talk of an ethnographic landscape that had been fractured and not only focus your questioning on the event of partition, the day of partition, the migration caused by partition, the trauma that remained from partition. It, you were talking about a way of life mm. and it was far more wholesome. And I think it took you away from the nucleus of that traumatic memory at times as well. How did you get that from your grandfather's yardstick to then interviewing other people? And I wish that there was some organized manner in which I went about it. But to be honest, when I started, I was 23 and there was no way that someone that young would know someone who was so old to have lived through partition. So I depended very much on my family. Mm. And at the beginning, it was basically like, can you introduce me to everyone you know that migrated from there who has objects? Because this was going to be a material study. I was mm. looking at memory through material. As an MFA student. As someone who was very interested in, in the visual, mm. in the textural, I wanted to look at objects, which narrowed down the possibility of interviewing people. Because there are many people in the city of Delhi, where I live, that came from across the border. But not very many still have objects that they carried or remembered that they carried objects. Or mm -hmm. if the object was very mundane, like my family, like a utensil, they wouldn't even consider it object enough to show me. Mm -hmm. so I would interview someone, then they would put me in touch with someone else, and then they would put me in touch with someone else. Mm -hmm. And as the project grew, People came to know about it. And then it became a little easier, but it did take a couple of years for that to happen. You know, even though someone had agreed to speak to me when I would reach their house and I would say, well, okay, I heard you have this thing. They would always say, oh, but it's not a big thing. And it doesn't really have much of a story. And as we would begin to talk about it and the object would be taken out, maybe it's a piece of jewelry or a shawl or, you know, paintbrushes or even utensils all these tangential stories would emerge alongside it about this incredible life before partition and friendships and family and work and school and a life of courage, you know, to have survived what they did. There was something really powerful that happened when, you know, someone is holding an object. Like there is a story in my book where a woman is talking about a shawl that she was wearing as a child when she migrated from what became Pakistan to India. And she's wearing it and holding it and clutching it. And you can tell very much that she's returned to that journey of, of migration and discovery and fear.
something very visceral happens with with the accompaniment of an object reading your book i got the impression that you learned a great deal as as you collect the material to write it you've talked about what you've learned about partition what did you learn about interviewing i began to learn what i was doing was called oral history first that's mm. also something i didn't know but oral history is basically the study of a particular event through the oral testimonies of people who lived through that event you embark on a series of questions with witnesses to understand the human side of the event and it's something that hadn't happened with partition not entirely the first oral histories of partition came out in the 90s and those were stories of women who had been abandoned and had become wards of the state or had been exchanged in populations after partition but there were no ordinary stories of people like my family or people who had to live in refugee camps or to rebuild their lives because no one asked mm. there is a sort of gestation period between when a traumatic event happens and when it is not too close to ask questions about it mm-hmm. sometimes i feel it's still too close every conversation you learn how much is too much and that may be different for the next person so learning and unlearning are very common in an oral history interview as when you finally come to them they may not want to speak to you at that moment and there's nothing you can do to force someone to divulge their memory you have to learn not to push and in certain places you can only imagine what they are trying to say through the things you have read about it or the films you have seen or the stories from other people mm-hmm. you can fill in the gaps when you're embarking on these interviews it becomes apparent also that human memory is not chronological it doesn't play out like a film people don't always remember in a linear fashion memory is not a photograph what you experience is not imprinted in your mind memory changes and i found with partition even though a lot of people had witnessed it i don't think they had really ruminated on what they had witnessed so a lot of times collective memory would become personal memory people remember differently even though they took the same journey mm-hmm. you use the word heavy quite often in your writing anything else you can say about that word what it means i think it means different things to me to carry the experience of partition mm. is a heavy was burdensome author mm. anchal malhotra is talking about her book remnants of partition this is tidings on wpkn radio and i realize that sometimes i hear a story for the first time and it really shakes me mm. but the people who have lived with that story forever since as long as they migrated that burden is something i will never understand right so that is a heaviness in itself mm. you learn to carry part of that heaviness you learn to take care of it when mm. you write about it and you learn to respect it and empathize with it and then you become a heavy person i don't often think of myself as a young light person even though i am quite young because the voices that i keep listening to in order to transcribe or translate or conversations like these as well when you have to constantly think about the things that you have heard and try and make sense of it and come up with learnings for future generations it does become quite a heavy process you use the word palimpsest as if you are yourself carrying all these stories 
I felt most like that when I was recording several stories a week. But I write about this in the epilogue of the book where I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would feel like I had to locate myself in my room. And details of stories would filter into one another. And it's very surreal. So you're imagining a lifeless child and you're imagining a woman on a horse and you're imagining you know, thugs cutting a woman's ears to take the gold earring she's wearing. And all of this becomes kind of amalgamated in your dreams. And then you listen to the voices in your interviews and you transcribe and you translate and you write and you transliterate. And feels like every experience is imprinted on the previous one. And that mm. is imprinted in your mind and in your heart. And I, I don't really like to make this about myself. Because I'm, I, I really am just a vessel. And there are so many other people that do this work as well. But before people passed away, that's the other thing, right? Mm -hmm. That people are in the twilight of their lives. I had the, the privilege of listening to them. And so any heaviness I feel is very minimal compared to like the heaviness they felt, but also the importance of their testimony. Also part of the heaviness is you had the responsibility of recording yeah. their stories. The responsibility was entirely my own. Like no one was telling me to do of this. Of course, of course. No one else who was my age or younger knew these things. We knew what we, we read in the textbooks. And that was a very glossed over version, a political version of partition about, mm -hmm. you know, the corridors of history and the politicians, the Nehru's, the Jinnah's, the Gandhi's. There was nothing about ordinary people. So... My grandparents and millions of people like them had just become numbers and data. Mm -hmm. The stories are not vague. They are nuanced. They are detailed. They remember all sorts of details, you know, wonderful details. They very much hold on to it. And I knew that what I was recording would be very important in the years to come. You've also started a museum of material memory. Can you talk about that? People whose families were not impacted by partition began writing to me to say, we have these aged objects, this set of silver spoons or this fabric that my great-great-grandmother wore. And they were not at all connected to partition. And thing that happened with the partitioning of land was that the culture was also divided. It feels like the Punjabis of Pakistan and the Punjabis of India are very different. But they are actually not. They are the same people. And so objects can show you that cultural similarity because somebody from Lahore, for instance, has spice box. Uh, and well, they show me a photograph and I post it online or I write about it. And someone from Indian Punjab says, well, wait, the same spice box is used in my house as well till today. That's so mm -hmm. interesting. I realized very quickly that an object could be catalyst for a cultural reunion of sorts mm. was a democratic way for the divided peoples of South Asia to surpass their very cemented borders and fortified nationalities. And it had to go beyond partition. So I set up with a friend of mine from school, a digital archive called the Museum of Material Memory, where anyone of South Asian descent, either living in the subcontinent or in its diaspora, could submit stories of artifacts and heirlooms and aged objects in their house. And, uh, you know, when you start to write a story about an aged object, 
you don't really always know the story. You have to consult an elder to say, where is this from? How long do we have it in our house? Who used it? Who did it belong to? It also promotes a kind of intergenerational conversation, which I think is dwindling in this day and age. Mm. I think the museum is a real proponent for that. And the fact that it is digital and it is crowdsourced means that it is accessible to anybody. Because if you have a museum of South Asia, where are you going to have it? Mm. Are you going to have it in India, where it's inaccessible by the peoples of Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Nepal? Are you going to have it in Bangladesh? Are you going to have it in Nepal? You know, any mm. country will prove geographically difficult. So to make it digital, it releases it from any boundary. Right. So it's in the cloud somewhere. Yes. Yes, quite right. <laughs> where you don't need a passport. Is it up now? It's working? It has been live for five years now. You can access it on a website called themuseumofmaterialmemory.com. I've not not heard about this before I read your book. We're small. (laughs) We're very neat. I follow fairly closely human migration these days. People across this planet, everybody's moving. And mostly it's not a very happy way to be moving partition and this huge colossal, as you call it, migration, is it different from all these other migrations? Is it unique? Of course, every migration is unique, but the 1947 partition is unique in the sense that it led to the creation of two different countries, two Mm. different identities were carved essentially from the same people, which to a lot of people who live through partition is something they cannot fathom. How can you separate us from our own? That was the question that came up a lot in interviews, but Mm. they were our own. And yet now these people exist on two sides of this border. Also, it's unique in the manner in which its memory has found a way to exist as a kind of genealogical imprint through the generations, whether we realize it or not. Partition created massive geopolitical consequences for the region. The most important one being the war over Kashmir. Mm. And then they created silent, unspoken shifts, like in memory, where either memory was forcibly forgotten or it was buried because it was too painful. Also, the burden is not just of memory, but also articulating it, which in turn affects how and if this memory is passed on at all. Silence Mm. is a very important carrier. And one that is practiced by many. But I think ultimately, there exists something quite extraordinary about partition that refuses South Asians the luxury to forget it or ignore it or move Mm. past it. I don't think that we can overcome the burden of partition. The subject is so viscerally enfolded in, in anger and bitterness and longing and loss and shame and fear for many. In countries like Britain and America, this question is, very pregnant with history. Where are you from? Mm. And in India and Pakistan, no one really used to ask that question of Bangladesh as well. India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. The question is never really, where are you from? Mm. If someone asked me that question, maybe 10 years ago, I would have said I'm from Delhi because I was born there. But after doing this work, I I don't feel like I'm entirely from Delhi and I'm not alone in this. I feel like I am casting a very large net over the spaces that my grandparents were born in and my great-grandparents inhabited and the cities that they worked in, many of which were in Pakistan, and the cities that they migrated to. 
And I, I don't know what it means to have this strange cross-border identity, but I know that a lot of young people are thinking about this as well. The fact that mm-hmm. the land of their origin or the land that their grandparents come from or their great-grandparents come from is now inaccessible to them because of a political border. I don't know if I'll ever be able to walk with dignity on the soil of all four of my grandparents. Like I've been to Lahore in Pakistan, which is where my maternal family is from both sides, but I haven't been anywhere else. And I crave to go there. Mm -hmm. And I think about it and I dream about it. And I don't know what it will feel like if and when I ever get to go there because the visa situation between India and Pakistan is so complicated. But I think for many, it's aspirational almost. So this kind of long-term cross-border multi-generational legacy of a division of land is something very unique, I think. And then also the, the great paradox of when Indians and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis meet outside of South Asia and they revel in one another's company. Mm. You know, they, they love the fact that they can say each other's names properly and they can you know, eat each other's food and talk and and sing the same songs and talk about the same films. And, you know, because basically we are the same people. We have Mm. the same feelings. We have the same cultural values. We look the same. We wear the same clothes. We talk in the same way. We make the same jokes. And I don't understand why when we are in our territories, we are so territorial of them. But when we go far away, we become brothers. Mm. So, so the, the idea of undivided India, it's a concept. See that it's a concept that can still exist, but you have to make an effort. You have to make an effort. And it's not just in the big things. It's also in the smaller things, how we speak about our neighbors, how we react to politics and news about them. We must not always buy into what we see in the media. Those small things matter. The, the dream is an undivided India. India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh as independent nations are an unalterable fact of reality. We cannot go back to an undivided land. So I'm very wary and hesitant to talk about undivided India in terms of landmass. What I am interested in is whether or not the peoples of a once undivided India can continue to live in civility. Mm-hmm. Whether we can be kind to our neighbors, whether we can look forward to some sort of reconciliation. You know, where Mm. enmity is not the first thing or suspicion is not the first feeling we think of. We think of them with kindness, with friendship. Mm -hmm. That's what I hope books like mine and and many other people who write about the relations with India and Pakistan. That's, I think, what we hope for. And that is the world we want to contribute to, be a part of. So, Anshul, tell people how they can participate by finding your book. You can find remnants of partition at a bookshop or you can order it on Amazon. And um, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope some of the stories resonate, maybe not in their geography, but perhaps in their humanity. And certainly in in the beauty of the objects in in the photographs that are in the book. I also know that you have written a novel that is Yes, I have written a novel. It will be out in America on December 27th. It is called The Book of Everlasting Things, and it's out with Flatiron Books. It is partly set in Lahore and partly set in France about 
a Hindu perfumer and a Muslim calligrapher who fall in love before partition and are drawn apart because of it and spend the rest of their lives thinking about the consequences of their actions that have been created by the politics around them. So it very much centers around partition, but also I think returns to the artistry of my background. It, it cares very much about the nuances and details about things like perfumery, both Indian perfumery and Western perfumery, the skill of Islamic calligraphy, the illumination of manuscripts, and the very underappreciated crafts that are being swallowed by the automated. And it slows down the rapidity of life. Mm. So Anshal, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. And I'm so glad to, to spend some time with us. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to read the book so carefully. Thank you. Truly a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Anchal Malhotra talking to us from India about her book Remnants of Partition, 21 Objects from a Nation Divided. You can hear tidings right here on the second Wednesday of every month, but anytime you like on hazelkhan.com. Thank you for listening to WPKN. I'm Hazel Khan. Mm-hmm.